I wonder, how many of you made it to the concert on Friday night? I mean, how many of you were glad that you did? How many of you are judging the people who didn't? <laughs> no, actually, it was, uh, it was really in a f- phenomenal time, and Fernando wanted to uh, communicate that he really enjoyed being here. He said, it's, you're such a, it's such a nice church. People are so good to them. So they were very thankful, very appreciative of everyone. And uh, so much so that we talked about, well, when can we do this again? And we talked around a bit, and he said, well, what about during Christmas time? So we're working on that to do a, have him come and do a Christmas concert. Um, and so, Lord willing, that will come together if you pray real hard. <laughs> so anyway, but we're continuing our study in the book of Revelation, and uh, I would, uh, we are looking at the seven churches right now, if you're wondering where we are in the progression. And it's important what, God, what Jesus says to the seven churches. Sometimes we almost look at those chapters two and three as kind of like set-asides, like he talks about the problems of the churches, and then he goes on to talk about what is coming in the future. And we almost kind of disconnect those in our mind, if it not actually in our conversation and teaching and instruction. And yet, I think it's important to see the linkage here, because when he's talking about the problems that these churches are facing and the, how that it's necessary to address them, he always does it from the perspective that one day you will be in eternity with him and therefore this, these are the things that will keep you from experiencing that eternal blessing and the coming of the Lord. And it's always in that slant. It's all about the eternal that's coming. And I think this is something that's critically important for us today because many of us people think of our Christian life in terms of the here and now. What can Jesus do for me? How can I experience my best life right now? And I would say if that's really what you're about, uh, you should go to the Nancy Robbins seminar, I guess, and figure out how to make your life work best. But the simple reality is that the prize of our calling is not here and now upon this earth. And that it may very well occasion us to have to surrender certain things to him in this life in order to be faithful to him. And that's why I think if you've followed my teaching at all, you've noticed that I frequently make reference to the parable of the sower. And I do so because more than any other of the teachings of Jesus is it so clearly explained the different reasons or why people respond or don't respond to the gospel. And he breaks it really into four simple categories. There are essentially two, the first two categories where he talks about seed that falls on the pathway and seeds that fall on the rock are really describing the way that non-believers, people who do not accept Christ, truly accept Christ, respond when they hear the word of God. And basically, he tells us of these two kinds of persons that they hear the word. It's not like they have an auditory deficiency. They hear the message, but it never germinates. It never takes root. In other words, it's just something that remains on the surface of their life. It never penetrates in a way that really breaks up the soil of their soul. And that's what we need to understand that germination is all about, is part of the idea of breaking up what it's planted in and creating a new life in something that otherwise was lifeless and dormant. But Jesus said the problem is with the first that the seed is snatched away by the devil and never really has a chance. 
I don't know if you've ever had those conversations with people where you're sharing the gospel with them and they look at you and they very kindly say, well, that's nice. I'm happy for you. As if it has nothing to do with them. And you realize it's just not penetrating. They hear it, but it's not making a difference in their life. And then there are those who seem to respond very enthusiastically, but it withers away. I I think G.K. Chesterton described it so well when he said, the Christian ideal has not been found, has not been tried and found wanting. It has been found difficult and left untried. And that would describe these people who wither away. You see, you rarely see either one of these groups in church, but if you do, you'll see the ones who show up quite enthusiastic. They're kind of excited about it. But when they realize that there is a cost associated with following Christ, uh, their enthusiasm subsides very quickly. Or as Jesus put it in Matthew 13, he says, when trouble, the word thlipsis there that's used in the original literally means when pressing things come. In other words, when life begins to press in on them. And that happens many times when we make our decision to follow Christ. Do we not find that things begin to press in pretty hard? Suddenly you're dealing with oppositions and problems that you never knew before. I often have to warn people, if you want to have your life become pretty crazy and chaotic, just start praying on a regular basis. And the enemy will do anything in his power to get you to stop. So that we have to understand that as soon as you become part of the army of Christ, you become part of the warriors of Christ. You enter into the battlefield. You begin to have to deal with, as Paul talked in Ephesians 6, about the arrows and the things that the enemy flings at you, his fiery darts that he sends your way. So he says these people that when trouble or pressing comes into their life or persecution... The word persecution literally means hostility or ill treatment. It says when that comes because of the word of God, they quickly fall away. Now, we live in an interesting cultural time, a cultural moment that's unlike most of previous human history. We live in a time where you can hold an unpopular belief, and up until recently, you could do so without any real negative consequences. That is you know, kind of evaporating around us even as we speak. But the simple thing was that I could believe the word and share the word and not necessarily have some negative consequences coming my way other than people saying, I don't want to hear it. I don't like you. You're no longer my friend. But at least they weren't, you know, finding a tree, putting a rope around it and putting the rope around your neck. But Jesus, most of human history has been like that. It's not, it's not been legal to hold a faith other than the one that is endorsed by the prevailing authorities. And so when we find that the cult- culture moves towards, and the world as a whole moves to increasingly to kind of a totalitarian system where you're required to comply, you're told you can do this and you can't do that, in fact, we have cases here all over Europe and also in the United States where people are just simply standing on street corners praying in front of abortion clinics and they're being arrested and put in jail and charged and fined for disorderly conduct and other things of that nature. Things which were really unheard of. And he says basically what happens is there are certain people who are good with being a Christian. They, yeah, that's fine. They think that's wonderful because they define Christian as being a nice person. 
And yet when they find that being a Christian has consequences, especially if you become a verbal one and you share your faith, they very quickly begin to melt into the woodwork. They stop being visible. They may still call themselves Christian. And that's really, I think, what we're dealing with in the church of Sardis. Now, for those of us who get discouraged when we share and minister to people and we bring them to church and they seem to be coming along and then all of a sudden they drop out of sight, um, we just need to remember what that the Apostle John said. He said, they went out from us because they were not really of us. If they had been of us, they would have remained. So one of the indicators of someone who has truly been, become saved and been rooted in the faith of Christ is that there's a continuation in their faith. It's kind of expressed by Peter when in John 6 it talks about how Jesus had fed the multitudes and the multitudes were so appreciative of having free food and not having to shop for groceries anymore that it said they came by force to make Jesus their king because he promised them a you know, universal basic income, I guess. They liked that idea. And yet, when Jesus said, if in, you're going to have to be willing to eat my flesh and drink my blood, they said, well, we are not really interested in that kind of a dietary structure. So he said many of his disciples departed and left him after that. And then he turned and he looked at the 12 and he says, do you guys want to leave too? And I love Peter's response. He said, Lord, where else shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. In other words, Peter had had such an encounter and life-changing encounter with Jesus, he was really ruined for anything else. The idea of not following Jesus, even though we see you know, some failures and some shortcomings in his life, but nonetheless, he was a guy who said, I, if I don't follow you, I'm going to be lost. Life loses all purpose and meaning. And that's part of the dynamic that when you've truly had an encounter with Christ, the idea of living outside of Christ is unthinkable. In fact, it can almost feel like it's undoable. And I would say, in a sense, it is undoable for any length of time. Because the kind of sin that separates a person from God is what John would define, if I give it an expanded definition, he says, those who were willfully and habitually and continuously walk in sin don't know God. In other words, you say, a person says, I'm a Christian, and yet you look at their lifestyle, and there's nothing about their lifestyle that would commend them to you as being a follower of Jesus. It seems like these are two separate things. They go to church on Sunday, but the rest of the week, and even after Sunday morning, they go right back into being who they were before, the same habits, the same addictions, the same attitudes, the same goals and objectives. And you look at that and go, well, what's happened? And it's because they are habituated to a lifestyle that is not part of the Christian life. And what they may be trying to do, and our culture certainly enables people to do this, is we can put on our Christianity on Sunday morning and we can wear it into church. But when we go back out into the marketplace, we become the same person we were before we showed up. Now, I'm not saying that Christians are people who don't have inconsistencies, but that's the point. You know, someone once said to me, well, I don't go to church because it's full of hypocrites. And I said, you might as well leave the world because the world's full of hypocrites. <laughs> if you're sucking air, you're a hypocrite in one way or another. And you, you may not believe that. Wait till you have teenage kids. They'll point it out to you left and right. The whole point is that, yes, there's this hypocrisy in us because none of us are consistent all the time. But it's a difference about saying, you know, I struggle because I'm inconsistent and saying I don't struggle because I am consistently this way. 
And that's the difference that Jesus makes. In fact, if Jesus doesn't make a difference, you have to wonder what difference does he make? The whole idea of having an encounter with Christ is it begins to change us, not because we have decided we're going to be different, but there is the compelling, Paul said in 2 Corinthians 5, 14, he says, the love of God compels us. There's an intercompulsion to be a different person. That even in the face of doing something that you know is not right and is wrong, and you, you find yourself having to confess it and say, Father, this is sin. I, I, I don't want to be this way. I want to change. I want to let you make me into a different person and all those kinds of things. Those are evidences of the Holy Spirit working in your life. That means the roots of the Spirit are going deeper and deeper so that you are drawing more and more from the vitality of being in fellowship and intimacy with God. In fact, I would simply say that the vast majority, if not all of you, have showed up on a perfectly good Sunday morning to waste it listening to a windbag like me. I can only attribute that to one thing. You are seeking God. Because, I mean, look at realistically. Even I would have liked to have stayed in bed this morning, right? So that's the whole point. I mean, the idea is we start changing our behaviors because we have behaviors that are in search of something more than this world can give to us. We're seeking God. Are we perfect? Absolutely not. Are we consistent all the time? Absolutely not. But the thing is, we are aware of our inconsistencies because we hold ourselves up to the mirror of God's word, God's truth, and when we see something that doesn't line up, what is our response? Father, forgive me. Help me to change. Help me to get it right. And that's the wonderful promise of 1 John 1, 9. He says, if we confess our sins, it's the only thing we can do, you know? Realize, do you realize that the only thing you can do with your sins is you can confess them? You don't have any, any power at all to do anything else with them. Father, I acknowledge it. I own my sin. He said, if you will just acknowledge it and confess God that was not right, I shouldn't hate that person. I don't care how many terms he serves as president. I shouldn't hate that person. What? I was talking about the rotary. <laughs> Forgive me for that, Lord. I know that's not your heart. And at that moment, God says, if we will confess those things, he's just and faithful to forgive us and to cleanse and wash us from all unrighteousness. In other words, I, I put it this way. He not only forgives, but he also starts fixing us. God will forgive you and God will begin to fix you. And that's, that's the work of the Holy Spirit. It's that miraculous thing. But there are some people that will find that will, they might even put a bumper sticker on their car. But the bottom line is they, they fail to thrive in the, face, in the faith because they never truly arrived in the faith. And we might call it a lot like a spiritual stillbirth. Stillbirth is one of the most disappointing, heartbreaking things that can possibly happen. And yet that often happens with people that, I remember <laughs> we were driving down to California, stopped in the town of Redding to go to the, uh, my kids were all younger and we stopped at a Safeway to go in and buy some yogurt so they could have something to eat while we were on our journey to visit our families down in the, uh, <clears throat> the dry zone. And uh, I run into this guy that I'd seen in church 
on a regular basis. And I said, oh, crazy running into you here in the aisle at Safeway in Redding, California. And he said, yeah, yeah. I said, I said well, so what are you doing? He says, ah, I stopped going to church. I said, really? How come? Ah, it didn't work for me. I was looking for a girlfriend, never got one, so... So any of you ladies that may want to do a redemptive work, I have his address and phone number. No. But it was just amazing. I mean, I was kind of stunned. I said, it's really that easy for you? You can just, it's really that easy? You just, yeah, yeah. Have a good day. Wow. Have a good eternity. But let's move on to the other two kinds of people, the, the hearers of the word. They're both hearers of the word. They're just not necessarily also doers. And this is really where he begins to talk about, talk about Christians and their response to what God is doing. Both, I believe, are true believers. They're seeds that are planted into good soil. They're, they're rooted. They're growing. And yet only one of them lives up to the potential that God has provided for them. The best one, and the last one he talks about, they, they're fruitful and they're effective. And Jesus uses five different terms to describe them. He says they, they're good, which means they're genuine, they're honest, they're sincere about their faith. It doesn't mean they're morally pure. It means that there's just a sincerity about who they are. Good people are not perfect people. Good people are people who are sincere in their effort to do good as opposed to doing evil. He says, secondly, they're noble. There's an honorableness about them, an integrity they're, they're not duplicitous people. They, they don't live by lies. They try to live by the truth. The thirdly, he says, they retain the word. In other words, they grasp it and they hold on to it very tightly. They grasp it and hold on to it very tightly. You see, my prayer for you today and every day that you're here when I'm teaching or anybody else is teaching is that somehow you'll hear the word and you'll also grasp it that you'll take hold of it and you'll hold it cl closely to you because you want it to be something that penetrates. I'm an absolute believer that the Holy Spirit has a way of speaking to every single open and available heart in the room with things that will be life-changing and meaningful, not because they came out of my mouth, certainly, but because that is how the Holy Spirit tends to work and to move when the Word of God is opened and when the Word of God is taught. They retain it so that it becomes a part of their life. It becomes woven into our, and therefore, he says, that they persevere. The word persevere means a patient endurance, a steadfast waiting. It means that you're hanging in there. It doesn't mean that you're hanging in there because it's going smashingly. You're hanging in there because where else are you going to go? In fact, one commentator simply said it's not swerving in the faith living with deliberate purpose and loyalty, even in the face of great trials and sufferings. These good ones, these strong ones, are contrasted with those who Jesus said become choked off. Literally, we could translate the word strangled. In other words, they, they've let something or someone stand on their air hose and they're losing oxygen. They can't breathe anymore. They're beginning to wither. They become suffocated by life. Life begins to encroach in them and it just begins to squeeze the air out of their lungs because they become snared. And literally, it's the word that I find so interesting is that 
Peter and Paul both use this word entangled. In fact, in 2 Timothy 2.4, Peter 2.20, they both write that they have become entangled or literally consumed with the affairs of this life and they've become overcome. With the word overcome here means to be subdued or to literally to become enslaved. In other words, become so encompassed by something, so caught up in something that you now live to serve it rather than the other way around. And I'm not talking about your mortgage. But it's this idea sometimes that people have. I think mortgages could be an example where people are so set on being able to buy their own home that they really overreach and they overcommit themselves. And then one day they say, I'm house poor or I'm car poor because suddenly I live to make that payment. And as we all know, by the fourth payment, it doesn't feel good anymore. And that's kind of a way of saying that we can become so wrapped up in the things of our life in this world, that suddenly we are not taking hold of them, but they now hold and control us, and they define who we are and what we do and how we behave. So that sometimes when I've seen Christians even violate their own conscience and become dishonest and become a thief, an embezzler, I've seen it happen with good Christian men and women. It happened because this happened. They, they got so entangled and so upside down in their own economic life, trying to live beyond their means, that they ended up relying upon, well, I'll just borrow from the school or I'll borrow from the business in order to cover expenses until I get in the other end. But I'll pay it back. They always mean that. But somehow they never get in a place where they can. And it's so subtle how this happens because you find, I mean, I've had to deal with situations with really good, solid, committed, godly men and women who somehow got themselves caught up in something that they didn't realize was happening. They allowed themselves to become entangled. I would say to you, friends, this is Sardis. This is who Sardis is. These are the people who... We're just living their life. And it's interesting. We don't find one commendation of the church of Sardis. Not one positive thing has been said about what's going on in the church. There's no, 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 re, no reference to persecution. There's no reference to hardships or difficulties. There's nothing like that that we see in many of the other churches. They just simply have been ensnared by life itself and entangled to the point where they lost what is really vital to our existence. Sadly, the unfruitful believer possesses the very same spiritual power and potentiality as the fruitful one. And we might really want to ask the question, why are they so unfruitful then if they have the same opportunity? Because we lie to ourselves sometimes, don't we? When we fall short of what we know we should be, we immediately begin to find reasons and explanations why that's the case. We can find people who we can blame and say, it's their fault, they did this, and if you had done this for me, if you've done that for me. I've talked to so many people over the years who have some incredibly, really interesting, long-storied excuses for why they're living in sin. But then when they're done with you know, telling me about their whole story, we're at best, still back at point one. But the fact is, you're living in sin and you need to confess it as sin because you'll never be free from it as long as you continue to pretend that you're not a slave. That's why the, I think it happens because the primary focus of the life becomes horizontal, not vertical. 
You know the difference, right? I'm looking at you horizontally. God is looking at you vertical. <laughs> you know, I'm looking at you horizontally. I'm looking at numbers and noses and nickels. You know, God is looking from heaven. He doesn't care about any of that stuff. But he is really concerned about what is the focal point of your life? What is ultimately the end goal? These are people who, for various reasons, have stopped looking up because they don't believe that there's a redemption that's drawing near. They live what I call a carbon-based life rather than a grace-based life. The rhythm of their life is set by the drumbeat of the culture rather than the call of Christ. And their hope is not in the second coming, but on the present moment. They forget that the author and the finisher of their faith is also the finisher. <laughs> that he's writing the story of your life, and he's already composed the ending of it, and he wants you to read it in advance and move towards it. They forget that not only is there a beginning and then there's a middle, but there's also an end. We can forget that we weren't created just for time, but even more so for eternity. Sometimes we try to separate those things. Well, we're not created for time. We're created for eternity. We are created for time. That's why we're here. We're created to take the time that has been given to us to live it in a redemptive way so that it can have an eternal consequence, an eternal reward and benefit so that we are created for both. But so many times people have stopped working on the end of their story and have suddenly become consumed with the middle. Where are you at right now? They fall in the same trap that Asaph spoke of in Psalm 73 when he complained. He said, I envied the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. And he goes on a great length telling about these people have it made. They have no problems. You ever feel like that about some people? Their life is so charmed. How do they do it? They don't seem to have any problems. They don't have any difficulties. And we began to say, I shouldn't have gotten married. I shouldn't have had kids. I shouldn't have been born. You know, we, we go in these weird, weird places in our head because we're believing in all of our minds that people who seem to be doing good were just blessed by the lottery of life to have a wonderful circumstance in which they live. And therefore, we begin to say, life is just not fair. And I'm so thankful it's not. Because if it was fair, I would get what I deserve. And believe me, none of us wants that. I never say, God, be fair. I say, God, be merciful. <laughs> Show me mercy, God. Show me kindness all the days of my life. Help me to be good, but forgive me when I'm not. Asaph is looking at these people and saying, they, they don't love God. They don't honor God. They don't serve God. They're arrogant. They're proud. They're self-assertive. They, they, there's no pains in their life like there's in my life. And then finally, he says, until <laughs> I entered the sanctuary of God, and then I understood their final destiny. You see, this is a theology that's gotten lost in the church today. We, we think about the here and now so much. Jeremiah, in fact, said this was the failure of Judah when he writes in this 
this painful eulogy in, 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 in Lamentations where he speaks of Judah and said, she did not seriously and earnestly consider her final end. She didn't really consider her destiny. Therefore, her collapse was astounding, extraordinarily hard. So here is Jerusalem living at high and suddenly the city is overwhelmed and destroyed and the people are led away in captivity and the death is everywhere and people are starving and all these things are going on. And Jeremiah said it was simply because regardless of how many times God said, seek me, they didn't. They were so in love with their life in this world that we forget that we're created for eternity and not for time. As Paul spoke to the Colossians in Colossians 3, 4, he says, when Christ, who is your life, appears, speaking of his second coming, then you also will appear with him in glory. In that short statement, Paul said, this is the whole issue right here. Christ, who is your life. And if he is your life, when he appears, you will appear with him and you will appear in his glory with him and share in his glory because in this world, Christ is your life. John tells us there's no teaching of scripture that more affects our lifestyle than how we look at the second coming of Christ. As he said in 1 John 3, 3, everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself even as he is pure. Paul, in writing to the Ephesians, first in chapter 1, then again in chapter 4, said, He is the hope of our calling. This is what our hope is, not for my best life now, but rather that I might experience eternal life with him. Because he said, if you don't understand that, he said to the Corinthians, if only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are of all people most to be pitied. In other words, you've missed the whole point. You've, you didn't get anything. Which is why it's so staggering when you think that only 50% of people who profess to be Christians today, according to the most recent Pew research, say that they believe in heaven, they believe in the afterlife, they believe in the second coming, in a theological, in a philosophical way, but to them it's more an abstraction, not a coming attraction. This despite the fact that one out of every 25 verses in the Bible speaks about the second coming of Christ and about the judgment of God that will follow that coming. I mean, when you just go through the New Testament, you can't miss it. In, in Acts 17.31, Paul is speaking to the Athenians, and what does he say to them? Here are these non-believing, non-Jewish pagans, and you think, well, how is he going to cleverly slip the gospel in them before they have a chance to realize they've been saved? You know, he's, I've had people cite this passage as stealth evangelism. <laughs> it's kind of like that, you know, Nacho's baptism of his friend, you know, sneak up with a pan of water and shove his face in it, you know. It's this whole idea that somehow we got to be so careful that we just, and, and of course, I, I admit, I confess, you know that I, I try to really be careful what I say and not offend anybody. But, but we get this idea, we actually, we have 
A whole movement was called marketing the church based upon this passage in Acts 17. How do we begin to present it as new and improved? It will change your sin odor without even having to bathe. Get to heaven without getting changed. (laughs) And look where it's led to us to some of the insane theology that's floating around in the name of Christianity. Uh, like the Sparkle Creed. If you don't know what that is, you just you have to look that one up. Sparkle Creed. But Paul, <laughs> being very seeker insensitive, said of God, He has appointed a day on which He will judge the world. <laughs> Whoa. If he's going to judge the world, what's going to be the basis of his judgment? Well, Jesus gives us details. He said, God sent his son into the world to save the world, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already because he has not believed the name of God's one and only son. Here again, people say, well, I can't, I can't like a God that sends people to hell. And the point is he doesn't send anybody to hell. He says, you're already on that path. The moment you were conceived within your mother's womb, you were following a pathway that would eventually basically said you are by nature an object of God's wrath in Ephesians chapter 2. That's why I was so messed up before I came to Christ. And believe me, it's hard to get more messed up than I was when I came to Christ. I was so messed up because I was born in sin and I was reaping the consequence. The more I sowed to that sin, the more disorder came into my life, the more dysfunctionality became marked of my personality. And when I came to Christ and that sin was forgiven and a new nature began to live in me, there also was a battle that began to be waged inside of me that I will fight till the day I break free from this human nature and enter into his holy presence But the fact was that I recognize that God has condemned sin in the flesh. (laughs) It's in this body, and that's why he promised to give you a new body. One that is not sin-based and carbon-based, but it's grace-based, mercy-based, holiness-based. As Peter, as John said in 1 John 3, 3, one that is like him, we will be like him for we shall see him as he is. That's the hope of the Christian. The hope of the Christian isn't, I'll marry a good Christian man and he'll be everything that Jesus is. Not realizing Jesus is already taken. Had a letter one time from a church saying, we're looking for a new pastor, and this is what we're looking for. And it went on listing all the qualifications that this guy had to be. And I wrote him back and said, I think Jesus is already taken. <laughs> I thought, I would never apply for this church. I could never live up to the standard. It wasn't that they wanted you to be sinlessly perfect. They just wanted you to never have sinned in the first place. So Jesus said, the, the dividing line is, will you believe on me or not? He goes on in chapter 12 of John, if anyone hears my sayings and does not keep them, the very word I have spoken is what will judge him on the last days. Can you picture that in your mind? Standing before God and hearing the very words of Jesus that you had heard over and over and over again, and now they're standing as your judge. This is why you're not 
entering into the presence of God because you didn't want that. Paul wrote to Timothy and said, in the presence of God and Christ Jesus, who will judge the living and the dead at his appearing? You see, even those who do believe in the second coming, many of them today don't expect it to be anytime soon. They're not predicating any of their present moments. They're not making any kind of decisions for the future based upon the idea that Christ will suddenly appear. It's certainly not going to have an effect upon their lifestyle choices, at least in the way that the writer of Hebrews put it when he said in Hebrews 12.1, strip off every weight that slows us down, especially the sin that so easily trips us up, and let us run with endurance the race God has set before us. You see, the early church clearly viewed the world and their life in it through this lens. As one historian put it, he said, the first century, most Christians believed that his second coming was close at hand. Even later Christian writers, that in the second and third century, like Clement of Rome and Tertullian, held to the belief that Jesus would return in person to conquer evil and reign as a prophesied king of kings. And this is only a reasonable <laughs> expectation and assumption because what are the things that Jesus said in Matthew 24 he writes no one knows the day or the hour only the father so you also must be ready because the son of man will come at an hour when you do not expect him and you must keep watch in Luke he says be like men waiting for their master to return so that when he comes they can immediately open the door it will be good for those servants whose masters find them watching when he comes, whose master finds them ready. And you also must be ready because the Son of Man will come in an hour when you do not expect him. You see, Jesus repeated this warning so many times as well as Peter and Paul in their letters. It's abundantly clear that he wanted us as his followers to live with an attitude of expectancy. Or the term that we use is imminence. It means about to happen. That's why he said to the church of stars, I'm going to come like a thief in the night. Now, when Peter wrote in his first letter to the church, he said he'll only be a thief to those who are not looking for him. And that's the danger is that many Christians, or at least professing Christians, I can't tell where they are in their spiritual life at all, but I can tell you this, that many and most Christians today are not thinking about today in terms of it could be today. It could end today either through my termination in life or basically Christ coming in the heavens. It could happen any moment that he'd catch away his church. Instead, they're living as saying, well, I can't see that happening. You know, I give it 10 years. I give it this. I give it that. And what happens is we fall into the trap, the very trap that Jesus warned us of. When he wrote, he said, but suppose that servant says to himself, my master is staying away a long time. The master of that service will come on a day and when he does not expect him in an hour that he is not aware of and he will cut him to pieces and assign him a place with the hypocrites where there will be weeping and gnashing of tree teeth. Now, Jesus did hint that his coming 
wasn't necessarily going to be shortly. I mean, if we look at some of his comments and things like the parable of the ten virgins, Jesus said the bridegroom was a long time in coming. In the parable of the talents, he said that the master had gone after a long time. The master of those servants returned and settled accounts with them. Now, we can ask ourselves, what is a long time? And the problem is, for us, a long time may not be long time for God at all. I mean, Psalm 90 says, for a thousand years in your sight are like a day that has gone by or like a watch in the night. Peter quoting basically probably the same psalm says, but do not forget this one thing, dear friends. With the Lord, a day is like a thousand years, a thousand years like a day. So we who are time-based beings measure things by the clock and the calendar. But God who exists before time and after time and all through time and all around time, for him time is merely a construct of his creative power. So he's not delaying anything. Everything he does is in perfect synchronization with his purpose and his plan. This is why Jesus went into such copious detail with his disciples when they asked him, when will this happen and what will be the sign of your coming and the end of the age? He told them, he said, the end will not come right away. Jerusalem will be trampled on by Gentiles until the time of the Gentiles are fulfilled. At that time, Jerusalem was still occupied by the Jews. It still remains trampled largely by Gentiles even to this day. I mean, the Dome of the Rock where the temple stood is still in the hands of Gentiles, Muslims. So he said, you know, it's not going to happen until Jerusalem is no longer controlled by Gentiles, which is something we'll get into later on when we talk about the, the, the tribulation period later on in Revelation. It all makes sense when you begin to see it from that perspective. But he added, he says, when these things, when Jerusalem is no longer controlled by Gentiles, and these things began to take place, stand up, lift up your heads, because your redemption is drawing near. Then Malachi, I mean, excuse me, Matthew 24, he said, all these things are only the beginning of birth pains. There will be di great distress, unequaled from the beginning of the world until now, and never to be equaled again. He's talking about the tribulation, again, which is covered in detail in Revelation. He said, there will come a time of cataclysmic catastrophe, unlike anything that you can imagine, which will make the Maui fire seem like a weekend jaunt. A horrific series of environmental, environmentally disastrous things. So that when people say, do you believe in climate change? I say, absolutely. Read chapter 4 through 22 of Revelation. There is dramatic climate change coming, but not because I used carbon-based fuel. It's because the judgment of God begins to fall upon the earth in unprecedented ways. Importantly, Peter also warned that one of the signs of the end would be a disbelief in the end. A disbelief in the second coming. Listen to what he said in 2 Peter 3.3. In the last days, scoffers will come scoffing and following their own desires, and they will say, where is the coming he promised? 
Now, rarely, if ever, have I ever heard anybody say, one of the signs of the end times is somebody, people are going to start saying, he's not coming back. And yet, isn't that what we hear more and more even from within the church? Do you ever wonder why so many churches neglect teaching about the end times? Maybe it's because 80% no longer believe that the Bible should be taken literally, much less seriously. You see, 70% of professing Christians say that the Bible is a collection of fables, legends, history, and moral precepts recorded by man. Not God, not God's Word, but something that men just kind of cobbled together over the ages. And so, you know, if it if I don't agree with it or it doesn't seem to make sense, then I don't pay attention to it because eh, just some, some old mythological, cosmological concept from pagan and primitive times. What you end up, though, is with something I think quite unattractive. You end up with kind of a civilized, casual, conforming, complacent, conflict-adverse, cafeteria-style Christianity. You know what that means, cafeteria-style? You go in and you pick what entrees you want. I'll take grace and I'll take mercy and I'll take... No, don't touch the sin. <laughs> Too many calories. And <laughs> uh, <laughs> Coming judgment, no thank you. Don't like spicy things. That's where we're at. That's where we're at. You know, it's, uh, <laughs> my, my older son who's a pastor told me, he said, yeah, when people complain about some things that I teach on, I just double down. <laughs> I said, wonder where that came from. <laughs> but what they are is in search of is their best life now. And therefore, they are willing to accommodate the culture in avoidance of any kind of trouble or persecution because they have a reputation of being alive, but spiritually they're dead. The salt has lost its savor. The, the light is hidden under a basket. The talents have been buried for safekeeping, invested instead for time and not for eternity. They aren't watching, nor will they be ready. As Luke, as Jesus warned in Luke 21, he said, be careful or your hearts will be weighed down with sexual immorality and drunkenness and the anxieties of life. And that day will close on you unexpectedly like a trap. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. If Jesus were to return today, would it make your day or would it ruin your weekend? Remember before we got married, my wife has said, I just hope the Lord doesn't come back before we get married. And I said, you know, that's really not the right perspective. And, and she repented of it, especially after we got married. <laughs> she prayed every day, Lord, come quickly. <laughs> And ever since. <laughs> it 
It was Jesus who exhorted us to be interpreters of the signs of the times. Signs means portents or of momentous and calamitous events, things that are telling us that something dramatic is coming in the world. Is it surprising that 80% of people say right now they're kind of uncomfortable about where the future is going, especially within our own nation, national borders? They're concerned about what's going to happen. And I, I would sit back and say, because the Bible says in the end times you'll be facing problems with great perplexity. In other words, without any obvious solution. Somebody asked me, who would I vote for in the next election? I said, I'd vote for Jesus to come back. <laughs> It's the only workable solution I see. But today, the signs are all around us. They're evident, obvious, but only to those who are watching and waiting and ready that have taken the time to sit down and say, what does the Bible say? Maybe I should pay attention to that because we are living in an unprecedented time of global change. I think that's what's most striking it's not just happening here or happening over there. It's, it's happening everywhere all at once. That this idea of one world government, of, of one world economy, of one world currency that the Bible speaks of and is actually, we're less than 12 months away from it, us, our own digital currency. Most people don't realize that now. <laughs> September 2024, they're going to launch a central banking digital currency which will essentially make cash outdated. We'll even see the growth of a new one world religion. I call it the new paganism. I talk about it in my last podcast, the new paganism. It's a non-religious, irreligious religion, which is basically Satanism. <laughs> but Jesus told us there would be wars, there would be rumors of wars, there would be false prophets, there would be false teachers, there would be a lovelessness in the church, there would be sexual immorality in the culture, there would be natural disasters that would begin to percolate to the surface, there would be famines in places which we're seeing today in a world which has more food than it can consume and yet we find there are places where people are starving to death. Anti-Semitism, the hatred of Jews would rise again. The apostasy within the church would become rampant. That people would become void of natural affections. That parents would kill their own children. Canada just had a recommendation from one of their government medical advisors that they begin to allow assisted suicide for what they called mature minors. In other words, people who are under 18 years of age. And I've never considered anybody under 18 to be mature. And yet they should be allowed to be assisted in taking their own life if they're unhappy. I wouldn't have made it to 12, quite honestly. But he said also, and I find this interesting... It's my next bot podcast. <laughs> Great signs in the heavens. So our senators have hearings about unidentified aerial phenomenon, used to be called UFOs or UFO. And I love it because they're unidentified, but we're sure giving some very specific identifications. 
Has it ever occurred to people, I just wonder, that the Bible actually describes the exact same phenomenon but calls them demons that defy the laws of physics and nature? No, we want to make contact with them so we can gain their advanced technology. And you can if you do. It's called being demon-possessed. You see, Jesus' closing words to the church in Sardis, I think, is so important that as you read it, it's really essentially talking about viewing your life from the other side of eternity, not on this side. I mean, it's amazing. If you, you read it again, what he says very simply, I've got to go all the way back to the beginning. He says, tell those who have not soiled their clothes that the day will come that they will walk with me dressed in white. That they will overcome and that I will never have their name, will never be blotted out of the book of life. And I will acknowledge them before my Father and before his angels. That God's going to acknowledge those who have been faithful. But it's all speaking about what's awaiting us on the other side of time. There's nothing about saying, and besides... You'll get a new Porsche 955 and, and uh, you'll get all these things that will make you so cool. You'll instantly become trim and better looking. John Philpot Curran was probably the first one who coined it. He's been quoted many ways. He said, The condition upon which God has given liberty to man is eternal vigilance. Liberty is conditioned upon an eternal vigilance, which condition, if one breaks, servitude is a consequence. That's almost always quoted in some variation in a political context, and I think it's applicable. But it's equally true in a spiritual context. Because if we look at the historic pattern for the church of Jesus Christ and this planet, they first became entangled in, this, in, the life, in their life in this world, and then they eventually became enslaved to their life in this world. This may seem strange to say, but I have purposely intended over the years never to play to the crowd or to grow the church by making this the most fun place you've ever been. We've never, we, you know, we don't want it to be about, boy, the music is great. Not that it's not great. But it's not about that. It's not about, yes, it's the preaching. You know, when I go in there, I just... As one guy told me years ago, uh, that what you need to do is make sure that when people walk out the back door, they're smiling. And you know I've tried to do that. <laughs> Some of them walk out the back door so fast, I fear for the ushers. <laughs> but you see, I've, I've been earnestly trying to put myself out of business and out of style. Because I don't think that the, the gospel has ever been stylish. And it's certainly never been a business. 
But as Oz Guinness once put it, he said, there's no way to, be more, to become irrelevant more quickly than striving to be relevant. He said, the only thing that stays relevant through all time is the gospel of Jesus Christ. He's the only thing that's the same today, yesterday, and forever. People like me, you know what we are? You put your finger in a glass of water, and you go, oh, look at that nice-looking finger. You pull it out, and you don't miss it. And that's you, that's me. We're here for a moment, and then we're gone. And if there's any lasting legacy, it's because God has been lifted up, not because of us. I think about men in my life who have been great influences to me, and, and, I, and I also realize not only were they used so profoundly and powerfully by God, but they, they also died like the rest of us and are gone. And if it wasn't for Instagram, we'd all forget about them. Your life is a vapor that appears for a moment and passes away. But what isn't vaporous and what is solid is eternity. The one consuming thing on your mind every day when you wake up, you should ask God to put this in your head, is God, if today I go home to be with you, let me live like somebody who today is going home with you. That's why in Hebrews 6, Paul's, uh, the writer said, Beloved, we are persuaded better things of you, things that accompany salvation. 